Let me pray, and then we will get going here. Lord, if, 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 what, um, if what we think the Bible teaches is true, then from eternity past, you have known our name, you have loved us, you have called us, you have chosen us, all that we are belongs to you. And so, how can we not enter into a discussion on your sovereign election without humility and praise? And so, we humble ourselves knowing that there is no difference. There's no reason why we should be in this room while so many of our city ignores you this morning to talk about the higher things of God. There's no reason that we would desire to be here There's certainly no reason why I am here teaching this, apart from sovereign grace. And so we humble ourselves, and we praise you, and I pray that you would give us a spirit of humility, teachability, uh, gentleness with truth, and yet bold with truth. I pray that it would lead to unity and love and fellowship among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, who can grab that door for me over there? Somebody I know. There you go. Thanks. Okay. So let me let me remind us what we're doing here. Um, one of our hearts as a church is to be a place that um, all traditions are welcome to join our fellowship. Um, it's something we hold um, very dear here. We make it clear that this is a safe place where you can join and be a part of what we're doing. Um, and it's a safe place to wrestle through some of our theology and distinctives. So that's true, but at the same time, um, we are very passionate about our theology and our distinctives. Um, we love um, our theology and distinctives. And so, um, even though this is, you don't have to believe all this to be a member, if you are a member here, we're unashamed. I'm unashamedly trying to um, sell our theology as, as beautiful and true. And so one of the things, one of the burdens we had is, is do, do, does, do I have a platform, not being a Sunday school teacher, um, being a larger church, so we don't have opportunities to get everybody together, is there a platform for me um, as, the, as the teaching and preaching pastor of the church to teach on some of these distinctives? Um, we don't view preaching as the opportunity to do that. We, we view preaching as the time to engage God's Word and not to just choose where we want to go in God's Word. And so we don't really have those occasions. So, so um, a couple years ago, the session said, why don't we shut down Sunday school every May? It's kind of a low time for Sunday school anyway. Let's shut down Sunday school, offer a combined Sunday school for everybody to come together and, and give you a platform to teach on things. Last, last year, um, I did a, a five-week lecture series on infant baptism, which is a question we get a lot. And then this year, I'm doing it on um, the doctrine of predestination, um, election, Calvinism, however you want to... Label it. Um, here's here's when I opened up that first um, when I opened up first with the baptism thing. I spent most of my time trying to show you that there is a culture and context to this that matters. That the reason why um, the reason why so many people in our culture in the evangelical culture not the obviously the mainline protestant denominations but the evangelical culture struggle with this is cultural reasons um, and how much that affects us and i really think the same is true for predestination 
Um, I want to show you that this morning, what I want to do is I want to kind of um, begin with a critique. I guess if you, here's the title. Why is it so hard to believe in predestination? So I'm not going to get much into the doctrine itself uh, this morning. I just want to critically engage cultural movements that I think are the reason why so many people struggle with this doctrine. And the reason why I say that, and the reason why I firmly believe that this is a cultural issue before it is anything else, is because predestination is clearly taught in Scripture. You cannot deny it. And predestination has been clearly held throughout all of church history until now. So maybe it's true that our culture hasn't figured out what the church always believed was wrong. Maybe it's true that we are now interpreting um, passages that obviously speak speak to predestination. Maybe it's true that the church always interpreted those wrong, but now we're getting it right. Maybe that's true, but I think probably the opposite is true. That we are blinded by cultural presuppositions. So I want to. That's how I want to go this morning. So I just made two big claims there. Predestination is clearly taught in Scripture, and predestination is overwhelmingly the stance of all of church history. I am not going. We're going to go through so many passages through this study, so I'm not going to go to show you right now um, that predestination is clearly taught in Scripture. It's everywhere. Okay, in a Google search, you can go find that. But I'll give you one. Let's just. This is in your Bible. Okay. This is in your Bible. And so, to me, it's like... I, I, that, um, somebody close to me said, Wait, you don't believe in predestination, do you? And I said, Yeah, so do you. It's in the Bible. And he's like, Well, yeah, but... And it's kind of like, just skip over it. Like, I'm going to read this, and just with teachable minds and hearts. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. In Him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. I mean, I don't know what... You have to do some exegetical gymnastics to try to make that say something. And that's, that's a small... That's not even the most... One week we're going to look at Romans 9. So here's what I'm saying. I, I just think it's clearly taught in Scripture. You have to deal with it. Maybe you can come up with a different definition of predestination, and we'll engage some of those. But it's there and you have to deal with it. And then when you look at church history, um, clearly it was taught throughout church history. Um, Augustine, the fourth century, is when this, uh, this doctrine that was always accepted started to be challenged um, by um, a guy named Pelagius, which formed Pelagianism. Pelagianism denied predestination, it denied original sin, it overemphasized on the free will of man. And in response to Pelagianism, we have a robust theology of God's sovereignty, over salvation, God's pure grace in salvation from Augustine. So Augustine is really the first major theologian who tackles this issue. Fast forward to the Reformation. Um, the, reason, the reason why we call ourselves a Reformed church is because we embrace the theology of the Reformation, and the theology of the Reformation clearly, um, vehemently affirmed predestination, whether it's Luther or Calvin, obviously Calvin, um, Knox, 
Um, the Puritans that came out of the Reformation were zealous for it. Richard Baxter, John Bunyan, John Owen. Um, the first great awakening of the American colonies um, was, was led by Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, um, who were Calvinists. It was a decidedly Calvinist movement. All the major creeds, all the major confessions, all the major catechisms teach it. Marilyn Robinson says that every major theologian except one, John Wesley, she would, she would include as a major theologian, except one taught predestination. And I, and I started thinking through that. I think she's right. I can't think of a major respected theologian throughout church history that didn't teach this. Every Protestant denomination except one, the one that Wesley came out of Wesley's teachings, the Methodist Church. Every major Protestant denomination except one has historically taught it. It is so obviously taught in Scripture and affirmed again and again in history. And yet now, in our context, virtually no Christian believes it and no church teaches it. Isn't that strange? Where did that come from? What happened? Well, during the early 19th century, there was a second Great Awakening. We talked a lot about this with infant baptism because this, is, this also makes it hard for people to believe infant baptism because the impetus of that was revivalism and walking an aisle saying a prayer and, and believer's baptism. But the 19th century, there's a second Great Awakening. Unlike the first Great Awakening of our country, this one was emphatically Arminian. Um, let me explain those terms. So you'll hear... Calvinism and Arminianism, which are two different ways of viewing um, soteriology, salvation. Okay, and Arminianism um, would would be on the other end of Calvinism. The 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 uh, and we'll get to the history of that in a little t- next week. Unlike the first Great Awakening, this one was Arminian, um, though it was initiated by. They laugh at us because the first Great Awakening was initiated by the teachings and techniques of a rogue Presbyterian who didn't agree with Presbyterian doctrine, and so he started a new revival. It was led primarily by Methodists and Arminian Baptists. And the Second Great Awakening gave birth to the Protestant. It was only a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago. This gave birth to the Protestant evangelicalism that you're now inhabiting, that we now know. The Christian culture that you are living came out of, is the fruit of the Second Great Awakening. And without a doubt... The Christian culture that we now have has the flavor of the Second Great Awakening. And I do mean we, by the way. Here in the bluegrass, the epicenter of this whole movement was 40 miles down the road, right outside of Paris, the Cane Ridge Revivals. You can go visit it. It's a cool tour. They'll give you the history of it all. So the Disciples of Christ, uh, the Christian Church, Churches of Christ, all of these Arminian Baptistic denominations trace their origins to the Cane Ridge revivals. And so what this means is that we just happen to be living in the small sliver of church history that finds the doctrine of predestination appalling. Not very convenient to be a Calvinist preacher in such a context, but that's where we are. Now, it's making a comeback. I must say that. It is making a comeback. Um, Over the past 50 years, we've seen things like Southern Seminary, uh, completely do a 180 on this through the leadership of Al Mohler. Um, you have the rise of the PCA, which over the past 20 years has been the fastest growing denomination. Um, you have John Piper and the Passion Conference movement where thousands and thousands and thousands of college students have been exposed to Piper's preaching. You have Tim Keller and Redeemer in New York. So it's really seeing a revival so much so that Time Magazine um, labeled Calvinism as one of the top 10 current trends that's changing the world. Um, but, but for the most part, still, predestination is seen by the average evangelical Christian 
as inconceivable, particularly um, boomers and up. Um, so my generation um, does not have as much difficulty with this as some of um, the ones who are older than us in the room. Um, but there are even greater reasons why the idea of predestination is so hard for us to believe. And this is where I want to spend most of our time. It is not just the smaller movement of the Second Great Awakening. It is the far greater movement of Western civilization. Every culture has its problems with the Bible. That's one of the things that's so compelling about the Bible. Whereas other holy books are like every book ever written, they are clearly the outworking of cultural thoughts. The Bible is a book that flows from the culture of heaven and so simultaneously affirms and challenges every culture. And ours is no different in the West. And so where the Bible presses against our cultural assumptions, we need to work hard to make, to not make the Bible say something that fits within our cultural narrative, but instead let the Bible critique our culture. And I would say that the doctrine of predestination, perhaps more than any other doctrine the Bible teaches, goes against everything we believe in the modern West. And that's why it's so hard for us. So why is it hard for us to believe in predestination? I'm going to unpack three reasons. Because of Western individualism, because of Western enlightenment, and because of Western elitism. So all out of the West. The individualism of the West, the enlightenment of the West, and the elitism of the West. So let's start with American individualism. In the Middle East, they struggle much more with whosoever believes will be saved. They struggle much more with, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come in. That's tough for them. But here in the free democratic societies of the West, we don't have a hard time with Jesus saying, whosoever believes. We have a hard time with with Jesus saying, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Why? Because it threatens our freedom as individuals. The West is all about individualism, which makes great societies, by the way. We are free to make our own choices. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Even now, as we've seen in the news, even with gender. Even my anatomy doesn't have the right to tell me I'm a boy or a girl. That's my decision to make. I'll grow up and decide that for myself. That's how deeply embedded this idea of individual freedom and choice is. And so a doctrine that says God chooses you, you don't choose God. In fact, God is sovereign over every single minute detail of your life that you are subjectively living in. That cannot be here because that is a threat to our free will, our freedom, our individual free will. So let me critique critique this whole notion of free will because that's the first question everybody asks, right? Well, what about free will? The Bible teaches that man is free. We make real choices with real consequences. But free will, like we conceive of it, which is autonomous creatures with complete self-determining freedom to make any choice, that is a crazy illusion of the West. You are not free to make any choice. Do you know that? You are not free to make any choice. For example, nobody here is free in this moment to sever off your hand. Nobody. And if you want to prove me wrong, then I invite you up here right now to show me. Anybody want to come up here and cut off their hand for us this morning? So I would say, because that nobody's going to do that, it's impossible for you to choose to cut off your hand. Now, the Westerner says, well, I'm free to do it if I want to. Precisely. 
if you want to. You are free to do it if you want to. You have the capacity to cut off your hand, but you will never cut off your hand unless you want to. And nobody here wants to, so therefore nobody here is free to cut off their hand. Who's in control? Your will or your desire? Your volition or your wants? Who controls? Our choices are slaves to our wants and our desires and our longings and our loves. We choose what we want to choose. And if we don't want it, we will not, cannot choose it. And now do you want to be terrified and feel utterly helpless? Who controls your wants? Who controls your loves? Who controls your longings? Certainly not you. And this is why the Bible calls us slaves to sin. Because by birth, we don't want God. We want sin. And that binds our choices, our very real choices and actions. It binds us. And you can't change what you want, which means you are completely out of control, though you think you are in control. You are a slave to your loves. But beyond the illusion of free will, which it is, complete, autonomous free will is something you dare not ever want because it's something you cannot handle. There is one and only one truly free, autonomous existence, and that is God. You are decidedly underqualified to have pure freedom. Keller likes to talk about Ray Bradbury's short story, The Sound of Thunder. A Sound of Thunder tells the story. It's a scientific short story um, about a man named Eccles. And it's in a time where they have this time machine, and you can go back in time for a, basically a historic safari. So they'll take you back millions of years um, to, to see what it was like back then. And uh, the guide of the tour is Mr. Travis, and, um, and, it's, and, and they have very strict rules. They have, um, there is an anti-gravity path that you're allowed to walk on so that you don't touch even a blade of grass. Mr. Travis tells Eccles, don't even touch a blade of grass here. You cannot get off the path. Whatever you do, don't get off the path. And Eccles says, why? Why can't I get off the path? And this is what he says, say we accidentally kill one mouse. That means that all the future families of this one particular mouse are destroyed, and all the families of the families of the families of that one mouse. With the stomp of your foot, you annihilated a billion possible mice. Well, what about the foxes that need those mice to survive? For want of ten mice, a fox dead. For one of ten foxes, a lion starves. For one of lion, all manners of insects, vultures, annihilate. Billions of life forms are thrown into chaos and destruction. And when mankind one day goes looking for food, you, my friend, have stepped on all of his food by stepping on a single mouse. So a man starves, and from his loins, one hundred sons, and thus onward to a civilization. Destroy this one man, and you destroy a race, a people, an entire history of life. Perhaps Rome never rises on its seven hills. Set, um, step on a mouse, and you crush the very pyramids. Washington might not cross the Delaware. There may never be a United States at all, so be careful. Stay on the path. Never step off. And if absolute free... He, by the way, the, the story is he, he, he steps off and he accidentally steps on a butterfly and he comes back and it, the whole world's changed and they have to kill him. It's a very depressing story. They have, to, uh, <laughs> they have to kill him so that that never happened. But anyway, 
If absolute free will were true, that's how you should live your life, paralyzed. Don't move. Don't move, for who knows what your autonomous free choices will mean. You don't want the burden of free will. If we had it, it would destroy everything in matters of minutes. Thankfully, there is only one completely free and sovereign existence who sees all things and knows all things and has the omnipotent sovereign power to work billions upon billions upon billions of choices that are being made every second by creatures together with the whole thing not going into mess and chaos. If chance were the sovereign, if you're totally free and we'll just see how it works out, it would not work out. Now, I say all that and still say this. You're not a robot. You do make real subjective choices that have real consequences. But God is completely in control. You make free choices and God is completely sovereign over those free choices. We freely choose and God sovereignly ordains every single choice. And you say, that can't be. It has to be one or the other. Those two can't coexist together. And I would say, why not? And you would say, because I can't understand how these things could work together in perfect harmony. They're a contradiction. At least to me, they appear to be a contradiction. Well, there's a reason why you think like that and talk like that. And it's a second reason why this doctrine is so hard for us. Because of Western Enlightenment. The Western Enlightenment was and is a wonderful thing, okay? Sometimes people think I'm a critic of the Enlightenment. I love the Enlightenment. I do not want to go back to pre-Enlightenment dentistry or or something like that. I love the Enlightenment. (laughs) The advances that have come from the sciences are astounding. However, the dark side of the Enlightenment is that the reason and mind of man is the new sovereign. The scientific method, which is staggeringly effective for what is intended to do, has spilled over into everything, and it has become the new epistemology. If it can't be tested in a lab, if it can't be explained by logic and numbers, if it does not fit within the narrow scope of testable knowledge, then it cannot be true. And this, of course, has given rise to the secular age that denies all the things that can't be tested in that way, supernatural realities, the metaphysical. And actually what they're trying to do is come up with scientific explanations for these things that clearly go beyond what is testable, things like morality and love and purpose and meaning and so forth. And so out of the enlightened epistemology is that mystery is no longer an option. If the reason of man cannot comprehend it, then either it's untrue Or we must press and press and press and study and study and study and explore and explore and explore until we understand it, until we can comprehend it. Nothing is allowed to be inscrutable. But the problem is that God and his ways are inscrutable. You cannot take that enlightened paradigm and and give it to God. I wrote a blog post about this a month ago called calling the inscrutability of God as the forgotten attribute. The etymology of that word is pretty straightforward. Unable to scrutinize. So when we say that God is inscrutable, we say God and his ways are unfathomable. We only know what he has chosen to reveal to us within the capacities that he has chosen to endow to us. He has given us some revelation, and we're students of that revelation, but always his revelation leaves us humbly silent, saying, God, you're God, and I'm not. The Trinity is the classic example. Here's what you believe about God, Christian. 
God exists as one God in three persons. That does not mean that God is divided up into three parts like a pie chart. So the egg analogy doesn't work. Okay? Like you got the shell, the whatever, the white, the yolk, or whatever. Um, this, that's not a proper understanding of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. But at the same time, the persons are distinct. In other words, it's not like God chooses to be the Father at times and then chooses to be the Son at times and then chooses to be the Spirit at times. So the, the, the water, ice, mist thing doesn't work either. That's modality. God is not split up into three parts and God does not move in and out of three different modes. God is at all times fully one existing in three. Confused? You should be. It's God. If you can conceive of Him, then you conceived of Him. If He makes sense, then you made Him up. It's okay. What's not okay is Western churches attempt to fit Christian doctrine into a nice, neat, enlightened era that says inscrutability is, is no longer an option. We vainly try to clean up the inscrutabilities of God to make our God and His ways more palatable to the modern mind. But the Bible doesn't do that. I don't know and I'm okay not knowing is a very biblical answer. Very biblical answer. Job's conclusion to the mystery of evil and suffering, I don't get it. I'll shut my mouth. You're God. Paul's conclusion to the mystery of divine election... In Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. There's the word inscrutable. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to God that He should be repaid? Nonsense. From Him, through Him, to Him, or all things, to Him be the glory forever. God is sovereign. You are free. I don't know. And I'm okay not knowing. God ordains everything that comes to pass, and you are responsible for everything that comes to pass in your life. If you mess it up, it's your fault. If it's redeemed, he gets the glory. If it goes well, he's glorified. If it goes wrong, it's your fault. That's how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together. Let me give you just a sampling of this in Scripture to show you this is how the Scriptures talk. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his ways. Oh, okay, good. We're in charge. But the Lord directs the steps. Oh, okay. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Work out your... Boy, this is, this is Arminian. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work, Christian. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Okay. For we are God's... Ephesians 2, 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Okay. Get to work. Which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in? I don't know, guys. And I'm okay not knowing. Because of Western Enlightenment, we look at these verses and many more and say, that can't be. It's either one or the other, either or, but the Bible is fine with the tension. It's not a problem at all. And we're going to have to be okay with that tension. Now, the problem is to make, um, to make Christian faith make more sense. What the church has done has gotten away with one side of the tension, and that's the sovereignty of God and emphasize to a very bad extreme the freedom, free will of man. We are free. We're just not as free as most of, the, most of the churches think we are today. So we need to recapture the other half of the tension, which is the sovereignty of God. Okay, final one, and I think this is uh, the big stumbling block. Um, because of Western individualism, because of Western enlightenment, and then finally, because of Western elitism. 
The fall of man has turned everyone inward so that we view all things from our own vantage point. Everything. We are our own God. We conceive of God the way we, our minds, conceive of God. I don't just have a man-centered view of all things. I have a Robert Cunningham-centered view of all things. That's the fall. That's common all, all fall men. But here's the problem with our context that you really need to know, okay? You really have got to see this. Our Western culture only feeds that problem. We naturally think all things around, revolve around us, and in fact that the world does revolve around us, and Western, enlightened, and Western culture says, you're right. Particularly us white Westerners. We run the world. That's rapidly changing, but it's still true. And so there is this snobbery to Western culture. We are right, everyone is wrong. You adapt to us, we adapt to nobody. We are the rulers, we are the heroes of the world. So we naturally think we are gods. And from the world's perspective, they kind of look at us and say, you kind of are gods. You ever been to a foreign land, shown up as a white male? Maybe half of you have done that, the other half have not. You run things. So our culture, here's the problem, our culture affirms our man-centered approach to things. And here's the problem. From a man-centered approach to things, predestination will never make any sense and you will never accept it. Ever. But the Bible doesn't view things that way. Not a man-centered perspective, but the Bible views things from a God-centered perspective. A God-exalting, a God who does all things for His own glory, a God who loves Himself more than He loves you. Even though you are infinitely loved, He loves Himself in His own glory. That's the perspective of heaven. And from that perspective... All of our objections to predestination are no longer objections. They seem silly. We struggle with why God doesn't choose everyone. The Bible struggles with why God has chosen anyone. We struggle with why bad things happen to good people. The Bible struggles with why good things happen to bad people. We struggle with why God would allow people to go to hell. The Bible struggles with why God would allow people to go to heaven. We struggle with why God doesn't give mankind what they want. The Bible struggles with why God doesn't give mankind what they deserve. We struggle with a God who gets angry. The Bible struggles with a God who is slow to anger. We struggle with the reality of God's wrath. The Bible struggles with the reality of God's grace. We struggle with the idea of a God who is completely sovereign over the affairs of man. The Bible struggles with the idea of a God who actually cares about the affairs of man. We struggle with a God who does all things for His own glory. The Bible struggles with a God who actually loves those who defame His great glory. It's a perspective thing. If you don't view the doctrine of predestination through the lens of a God who does all things for His own glory, who stands supreme at the center of all existence, and all existence revolves around the purposes of His great will, who is the creator and we are the creature, who is the potter and we are the clay, you will never accept this doctrine. But if there's a shift to a God-centered biblical perspective, then you'll start to understand it. But I find it curious that nobody has a problem with the doctrine of human election and human choice. The same accusations that we throw at God seem ridiculous 
when we start throwing them at other people from our perspective. Here's what I mean. Take adoption, for example. Several of you, some of you here, have adopted internationally. Every time this happens, there's a gathering at the airport. We welcome you home. There are balloons. um, There are signs celebrating everything. The whole environment is a celebration as it should be. Suppose you came back with your adopted child to an airport and we were greet- and you were greeted with a protesting mob. And the signs didn't say, congratulations on your adoption. The signs said, how dare you only adopt one? How dare you? They're screaming at you, one? You only choose one? You have the resources for more. You could have chosen more. Why just one? It's unjust of you. It's so unjust of you for only to choose one. It's crazy. We never talk that way, but that's our, but, because that's from our lens. That's from our perspective. And we understand the love, the cost, everything it involves to adopt. But that even falls short. Imagine the orphanage is filled with people who hate you. Filled with people who don't want you to adopt them. They are not longing to be adopted into your family. They loathe your family and they loathe you. And want to stay right where they are in their orphanage. And imagine that justice demands you not adopt them. It would be wrong. Instead of adoption being the right thing to do, it is actually the wrong thing to do. And imagine that the cost of adoption wasn't money, but the life of your only biological child. They hate you. They want nothing to do with you. They want to be left alone. The just thing would be to leave them alone. And to overcome all of that and adopt them, your son has to die. From that perspective, would you not be surprised and utterly shocked that even one gets adopted? Welcome to heaven. Welcome to the dilemma of heaven. It is a perspective thing. The man-centered perspective of the West versus the God-centered perspective of the Bible. We're going to plunge into the depths of this doctrine of predestination. But as we do, can we please, please, can I challenge you to take off um, our presuppositions that we bring to this argument, to, to allow ourselves and our culture and the things that we assume to be critiqued so that we can honestly, with open hearts, approach this heavy, weighty, beautiful, glorious doctrine that is a God who would dare choose some. Let me pray for us. Cut through the blinders, Lord. Show us where we're not thinking rightly so that we might be prepared to worship the God of sovereign grace. Mm, Lord, you, before the foundations of the world, chose me. Why am I here? What am I doing? I should be in a gutter. And for some reason, you grabbed me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, sovereign spirit. Thank you, Father. And it is because... You are so committed to election. You are so committed to raising the dead that we go forth confident, eager to see whom you have for yourself, the elect that are waiting to be gathered in in Lexington. Lord, if it was not true, then we're wasting our time. But because it is true, we believe, even going along with my sermon this morning, we believe that as we go out to bless Lexington and bless the nations, you have a harvest that is ripe and ready. Bring them in, Lord. Salvation spring up from the ground. 
May the lost be saved by your sovereign hand. Thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to endure the cost of your Father's election. That decree was a costly one, and you, and you did it for us. We don't know why, but we stand amazed and we worship you. Help us now, for those of us going into worship, that it would be in that spirit that we now prepare our hearts to worship the God of sovereign grace. Amen.